The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. Hope you had a good Groundhog Day. Punk's attorney Phil saw his shadow, so that means six more years of lockdown. The New York Times reports that the Biden administration is considering putting together a cross-agency task force to combat, quote, disinformation and domestic extremism. It will be headed by a so-called, quote, reality czar which the Times reporter concedes is a phrase that sounds, quote, dystopian. No one knows anything at the New York Times these days. It's written by woke interns. Yes, the phrase reality czar is in a general sense dystopian, but it is more specifically Orwellian. If you listen to yesterday's episode of my serialization of George Orwell's 1984, And if you didn't listen, you should have. Uh, You will have heard Emmanuel Goldstein refer to, quote, reality control, reality control. They're basically just lifting the lingo straight off the page now. Whoever's waggling the moth-eaten sock puppet of Joe Biden is planning a reality control agency headed by a director of reality control. How's that vaccine distribution control going? Boris Johnson's Britain is a forlorn and depressing place, but the vaccine rollout is a Brexit success story. The United Kingdom currently has the highest vaccination rate in Europe, 15% of the population. That's the third highest in the world after Israel, nearly 60%, and the United Arab Emirates, 35%. Bahrain is number four, and despite the bungling of the butcher Cuomo and other governors, the United States is number five, just shy of... 10% of the population. Number six is Serbia. Serbia. 6.4% of the population vaccinated. Serbia is not in the European Union, which means that like the United Kingdom, it is a sovereign nation free to run its own vaccination system. In the EU, Brussels is in charge and it's a disaster. UK 15% vaccinated, Serbia 6% vaccinated, the European Union, that's France, Germany and 25 other nations, 2.9% vaccinated. That's the worst in the developed world, except for the number one El Stinkeroo Floppo, Justin Trudeau's Canada, 2.58%. In three weeks, we will mark the first anniversary of the very first ChaiCom 19 mass quarantines in the Western world, in 11 municipalities in northern Italy. Lockdown prevails to one degree or another all over the map, with the possible exceptions of Florida and Sweden. Oh, and Belarus. Uh, France has a curfew from 6pm to 6am. That's half the day, 12 hours, or almost twice as long as it was for France under German occupation when the curfew was in effect only from 10pm to 5am. Seven hours a day as opposed to 12 right now. As we prepare to enter the second year, the Chinese coronavirus continues to inflict profound damage on freedom of movement, freedom of association, freedom of religion. 
And the longer it goes on, even the bright spots, the consolations, the heartwarming stories, the inspirational events all head south. When this thing hit a year ago, a researcher at Rutgers University in New Jersey, Andrew Brooks, worked tirelessly to develop a COVID test. The nasal test that isn't much fun, or at least it wasn't until the Chinese came up with the anal swab, Uh, But it did the job and Mr Brooks got emergency approval from the Food and Drug Administration in April. That's the great innovative energy that we foreigners associate with America. Uh, Mr Brooks is not famous, but he did something that made a difference. He died the other day. He was 51. And the Wu flu wanders on. Oh, I'm, uh, I'm terribly sorry. I see Joe Biden has signed an executive order forbidding references to the place where the COVID originated. All over the news, there are anchors and experts referring to, quote, the South African variant and, quote, the UK strain. But you can't say the Chinese coronavirus. Any variant or substrain uh, can be identified by its place of origin, but not the original, not the place that spawned the thing. Anyway, whatever you call it, the Wu flu wanders on. Just under a year ago, a 99-year-old widower became universally beloved throughout Britain and known to one and all as Captain Tom. Back in 1939, 19-year-old Tom Moore, enlisted with the 8th Battalion, the Duke of Wellington's regiment, got shipped to India with the Royal Armoured Corps, fought at the Battle of Ramri Island, And then in the Burma campaign, Burma, it's always Burma, not Myanmar, no matter how many coups they stage. Captain Moore came home to England and for the next 63 years organised the annual reunions for the Duke of Wellington's regiment. Uh, Three quarters of a century after the war, he opted to re-enlist in a new campaign and help raise money for the National Health Service. So on April the 6th, Captain Tom announced he'd walk 10 laps a day in his garden with the aid of his walker and while wearing his medals, the Burma Star, uh, 1939-45 Star, the War Medal, in order to raise £1,000 to help fight COVID by his 100th birthday on April the 30th. When the fundraising campaign closed on that 100th birthday, three and a half weeks later, he had raised £33 million. He got knighted by the Queen at Windsor Castle. He got a birthday phone call from the Secretary General of the United Nations, whoever that is. He, He was loved by all. And in December, British Airways, to thank him for inspiring a demoralized people in the slough of despond, gave him a free flight for a holiday in Barbados. He came back to England from Barbados and last month came down with pneumonia. Because of the pneumonia, he could not be given the COVID vaccine, uh, for otherwise he would surely have been one of those 15% vaccinated in the United Kingdom. He tested positive for the COVID a week ago, was taken to hospital on Sunday, and died today. Last year, Michael Ball, the popular British entertainer, whom you can hear uh, Don Black uh, talking about on my New Year special with Don, uh, Michael appeared on the BBC and decided to sing by way of tribute to Captain Tom, You'll Never Walk Alone, because he was walking for charity and doing so 
in isolation while being watched by a socially distant guard of honour from the 1st Battalion, the Yorkshire Regiment, uh, with whom the Duke of Wellingtons were merged a couple of years back. And within 24 hours, someone at Decca Records had come up with the idea of an unlikely duet. Here are Captain Sir Tom Moore and Michael Ball. When you walk through a storm Hold your head up high And don't be afraid of the dark At the end of the storm There's a golden sky And a sweet silver song Of the dark Walk on through the wind Walk on through the rain Though your dreams be tossed and blown Walk on, walk on With hope in your heart And you'll April the 30th, 2020, Tom Moore's 100th birthday, that record became Michael Ball's first number one single. Oh, and also the first for Captain Tom, who became the oldest person ever to have a number one smash, breaking the previous record held by Tom Jones, who was a mere whippersnapper of 68 last time he hit the top spot. No other man in history has ever gotten to celebrate his 100th birthday with a number one single. Dead of the Chinese coronavirus, a few weeks shy of his 101st birthday, Captain Sir Tom Moore. Do you like those three-quarter century old Rogers and Hammerstein show tunes still producing number one records in the third millennium? Well, here's a more recent Broadway hit from the Wizard of Oz sequel, Wicked, by Stephen Schwartz. Mr. Schwartz has repurposed his song in order to celebrate Kamala Harris. Here is the Hollywood and Broadway soubrette Kristen Chenoweth, even perkier than usual. So stand well back. Her name is Kamala it's someone named Kamala And truly since I've begun To learn all she's done I see she deserves that spot And also I learned it's no, not Kamala So think of it like Kamala Because Kamala She's good for America And popular as she was Well now Kamala's popularity will grow Because we know how much she's gonna be helping Joe 
wait a minute, Kamala the astuter prosecutor? Yeah, she was pretty astute at putting in prison black men, uh, African-Americans, I mean, not Kamala's and Barack's fellow British subjects, black men who happened to be partial to marijuana. And she was pretty astute in falling awfully quiet about the tough prosecutor shtick when she was running in the Democrat primary. Propaganda songs airbrushing history. Yeah, that's straight out of Orwell, too. OK, Kristen, big finish. That's Kamala. No wonder she's popular. She'll help to bring better days in so many ways. It's time to shout hurrah. We love Michelle Obama, and now we've got Kamala. Kamala la la. Kristen Chenoweth. America is in for four years of this from the celebrity class. There's a lot of competition to be the most unabashedly fawning court eunuch out there. And this is an impressive start. I haven't seen Stephen Schwartz in a few years now. He wrote Godspell and a show I was rather fond of called The Baker's Wife. And I used to see him in London and New York from time to time. So I rather regret that he's reduced to rhyming astuter with prosecutor and Wenet with Senate. What better way to escape from a world of censorship, surveillance, and big government than by delving into a novel about, well, censorship, surveillance, and big government? Mark Stein's latest tale is as timely as ever. Tune into Stein Online nightly as Mark reads George Orwell's dystopic 1984. Tales for Our Time are available exclusively to members of the Mark Stein Club. Listen to the latest tale and all the previous ones by going to www.steinonline.com. And now... From the land of empty plinths. It's Mark Stein's Statue of the Night. You put me high upon a pedestal So high that I could almost see eternity No longer need notorious Confederate General Mahatma Gaylord Beauregard Gandhi. In Davis, California, a few nights ago, Gandhi's statue came a-tumbling down. An act of vandalism in Davis, a statue of Gandhi ripped from its base in Central Park there. Fencing and plywood now surrounds the statue's base, with cones covering the area where it was torn off. A park worker found the 650-pound bronze statue yesterday on the ground with the head missing. 
They still have not recovered Gandhi's head. Who wouldn't want a statue of Gandhi in his town? Every time I go on national public radio once a decade or so, some dopey, pasty-faced, bleeding-heart lib nitwit calls in and quotes Gandhi at me. But unless you're a clapped-out boomer rent-a-quote hippie, you want Gandhi out of there. Here's Mahatma and what's your hurry, as I said on this show a few months back. The local Indian community in Davis is not happy about the destruction of their Gandhi statue, but when they went to protest, they ran into a bit of opposition. We are here to celebrate Gandhi's legacy and to condemn the heinous act of violence that occurred in the Davis. But as their caravan came to a close, they were met with counter-protesters. It's unfair all the way around for us to believe this false narrative. Dr. Prabhyot Singh saying any statue of Gandhi doesn't belong in a public park. Critics have argued that despite Gandhi's achievements, he had reprehensible character flaws. It is absolutely unfair to have such a questionable figure um, planted in, in parks. We're talking about a pedophile statue. Supporters still wanting the vandals caught and the statue reinstated. Oh my, Gandhi in later life was a fanatical celibate. So he liked to test his celibacy by sleeping with naked women because how else can you really test that the celibacy is working? than by getting a couple of hotties to lie on either side of you all night long with you in the middle declining to rise to the occasion. It's strictly for medicinal purposes. In fact, so much so that among the naked chickies he had in the sack was his own personal physician. So it's all perfectly respectable. Just step behind the screens, doctor, and remove all your clothes. He also had his two teenage grandnieces disrobed and in there with him. Uh, just to make sure the old celibacy was holding up all right. So the Me Too crowd are sufficiently culturally insensitive uh, to think that uh, Gandhi sleeping with naked jailbait is all a bit iffy. Black Africans hate him because after being called to the bar at the Inner Temple in London, he practiced law in Natal province in South Africa and even by the standards of the day, his views of black people were somewhat hardcore. Among his fellow Indians, the Sikhs accuse him of genocide. So whether in his fully clothed British barristerial court dress days or in his loincloth Indian nationalist guise, the rap on him is pretty severe. He's a racist, genocidal pedo or some sort of all-you-can-eat salad bar melange of Robert E. Lee, Churchill and Jeffrey Epstein. What do I think of Gandhi? Well, my view of him is basically that of his King Emperor George V, who was leaned on to receive Gandhi at Buckingham Palace and is said to have responded, he better not wear that bloody loincloth. I try to separate my uh, opinion of Gandhi uh, from the aforementioned clapped-out boomer nitwits who loved to chortle at the story of the great man being asked by a reporter, what do you think of Western civilization? And him replying, I think it would be a good idea, which is a civilizationally self-loathing white middle-class boomer twits idea of a cute line, and not something Gandhi himself ever said. He was, after all, a British barrister from the Inner Temple. So I can understand the urge to tear down the stupid Gandhi that wanker liberals have made him. 
Nevertheless, my view on statues is this. We erect them not to nice persons, but to consequential persons. And in all his creepy, pervy, racist fullness, Gandhi was a consequential person. On the other hand, the blacks hate him, the Sikhs hate him, the people who think you shouldn't sleep naked with your great nieces hate him. This is a preview of the world after the last white man is gone, maybe in about 15 years' time. And only blacks, gays, Hispanics, Muslims are left to live with what Marx would have called the internal contradictions of the Rainbow Coalition. We see it already in the transgender ascent, where trans activists are diminishing feminism and indeed female identity more generally and more totally day by day. We see it on the ground in Amsterdam and the east end of London, where the gay pubs are closing and Muslim youths run patrols of anti-homosexual enforcers. And we see it in Davis, California, where a man reduced to a cliché of sentimentalized California hippie pacifism is, to everybody else, just another hater. Keep up to date with the past on The Hundred Years Ago Show with Mark Stein. Bombing New York, the difficulties of self-government, and, oh, sorry, we forgot to execute you. It's February 1921. A hundred years from today. Your World News Update, the messy aftermath of the Great War continues. Germany's Foreign Minister, Walter Simons, has told the Reichstag that the government will not accept the Allied Supreme Council's schedule for reparations due under the Versailles Treaty and will propose new terms. For their part, the Allies have reduced the amount Berlin will have to pay for the victor's occupation of the Rhineland. Count Carlo Sforza, Italy's foreign minister, says Germany will only be on the hook for 240 million gold marks. That's about 12 million pounds, 47 million dollars, and represents for the Berlin government a reduction of 83% from what was originally due. Wait till you get them up in the air, boys. Wait till you get them up in the air. And make them hug and squeeze you too. Or if they don't, just say you won't come down until they do. So wait till you get them up in the clouds, boys. There won't be anyone to watch you there. When you get her way up high, have all the fun you can. There never was a girl who'd fall that far for any man. So wait till you get them up in the air, boys. Up, 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 way up in the air. Wait till you get them up in the air, boys. Not the girls, the bombs. The World War was appalling in the toll it took of our young men. But the slaughter could have been worse, at least for Americans. Wait till you get them up in the air, boys. Up, 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 way up in the air. U.S. Army Brigadier General Billy Mitchell has told the House of Representatives Naval Affairs Committee that in 1918 Germany had been preparing to bomb New York City 
with the last of three Zeppelin airships built by the Imperial German Navy, the L-72. General Mitchell testified that the airship was all ready to make the trip and then suddenly the armistice was signed. Quote, I believe that it could have attacked New York City with success, the Brigadier General said. It was designed to fly at a height of 30,000 feet, thus making it virtually immune from attacks by airplanes on its trip here, unquote. He added that the U.S. Army was working on producing something similarly lethal. Under the disarmament terms of the Versailles Treaty, the L-72 was surrendered to France last year and immediately renamed the Dismude in honour of the Fusilier Marin who died at the Battle of Dixmude in Belgium. Dimitrios Rallis has resigned as Prime Minister of Greece after a disagreement with his Minister of War, Dimitrios Gunaris, over going to war with Turkey. King Constantine has appointed Nikolaos Kalageropoulos to replace Mr. Rallis. The Empire of Japan's War Minister, Count Tanaka Gichi, has announced that another division of troops will be sent to its governorate of Chosen. Chosen is the peninsula that sits across the Sea of Japan from Fukuoka. In elections in South Africa, Prime Minister Smuts and his South African party have won 79 of 134 seats, which means they will no longer need to govern in coalition with the Unionist Party. Uh, This is a major setback for opposition leader General Herzog's campaign for the Union to secede from the British Empire. Elsewhere in the empire, the Duke of Connaught, on a long tour of India, has rested his tired caravan in Calcutta, where he opened the Bengal Legislative Council, the first advisory body of native Indians in the province. In his speech to the councillors, the former Governor-General of Canada and uncle of the King Emperor, reviewed political progress, warned his audience of the difficulties of self-government, but suggested the powers of the ministers and of the electorate would be extended. Quote, with sobriety of language and freedom from passion and prejudice, said His Royal Highness, the British Parliament ten years hence will be justified in enlarging the scope of the administrative activities. Tell it to Ireland's revolutionaries, the Irish Republican Army pulled off what authorities privately concede was a most cleverly laid ambush at Clonfin on the road between Grenade and Ballinalee in County Longford. The plan involved detonating a bomb as two truckloads of Royal Irish Constabulary auxiliaries passed. The bomb killed the driver of the first lorry, and the rebels then fired on the men. Four of the 19 RIC auxiliaries are dead and eight are wounded. Just 24 hours later, a second ambush by the Irish Republican Army in Queenstown, County Cork, has killed 17 policemen. 
the Archbishop of Mexico City, Jose Mora y del Rio, the head of the Catholic Church in Mexico, has had his palace bombed. The chief of police says the attack is the work of Mexican Bolsheviks. However, President Obregón says the bombing was the work of individuals and directed not at the church but at Archbishop Mori del Rio personally. He advises the archbishop to focus on the work of the church and to cease meddling in politics. In the United States, outgoing President Wilson, at the request of incoming President Harding, has called a special session of the Senate for the morning of Inauguration Day, March the 4th, in order to approve Mr. Harding's cabinet appointments. The Army Reduction Resolution was passed by Congress but vetoed by President Wilson, both houses of Congress have now voted overwhelmingly 271 to 16 in the House, 67 to 1 in the Senate, to override that presidential veto. The resolution is now law and the U.S. Army will be reduced to 175,000 men. The U.S. Governor-General of the Philippines, Francis Harrison, has given by cable his resignation to President Wilson, effective on the inauguration day of Mr. Wilson's successor. Mr. Harrison presided over a period of Philippinization in the territory, intended to prepare it for independence. That made him popular with people in the Philippines, but not with everyone back in Washington, where he was regarded as being insufficiently protective of U.S. interests. In Monroe, Louisiana, Lonnie Eaton, a Negro man convicted of murder, was scheduled to be hanged. But fortunately for him, the sheriff forgot to carry out the execution and nobody in the department reminded him that he had the governor's death sentence to perform. Four days later, having been apprised of his negligence, the embarrassed Sheriff Grant notified uh, Governor Parker and asked what he should do now. The governor is mulling it over. And that's the way of the world, February 1921. A hundred years from today. A hundred years from today. Oh, you know what this music means. Mark's Mailbox is on the air. Rob Thompson, a first-week founding member from Johannesburg, South Africa. Uh, Rob may be a little young to have had uh, Mahatma Gandhi as his barrister. I'm trying to... Work this out. I think, uh, if memory serves, Gandhi left Joburg during the Great War. So that would make Rob a whippersnapper of 127 or so. Anyway, uh, I, I take it he's younger than that. And Rob writes, Hi, Mark. I'm with you on the stolen fraudulent election, sure. But where is the real evidence publicly available? 
Why did the Supreme Court refuse to hear the state of Texas's brief and that of the remaining 19 states who were amici curiae? Surely the court's reasons for refusal to hear the application and the evidence should be publicised all over the globe. Yours is sadly one of the few programmes which I really enjoy and enthuse over to all my sometime backward friends. Hope to meet you soon. Uh, Well, good luck with that, Rob, because the idea of a Canadian getting to South Africa or a South African getting to Canada or uh, New Hampshire is all but impossible in our lockdown world. Uh, But you could always try the Mark Stein Cruise at MarkSteinCruise.com. Uh, we would love to have you, and there'll be many friends from all over the Commonwealth there. As to the more substantive matter in your missive, you say, surely the court's reasons for refusal should be publicised all over the globe. Well, here is the Supreme Court's order in its entirety stating its reasons for refusal. If it goes on too long, we may have to serialise it over the next few days, but I'll at least start Uh, in reading out the order in its entirety today. Here we go, quote, The state of Texas's motion for leave to file a bill of complaint is denied for lack of standing under Article 3 of the Constitution. Texas has not demonstrated a judicially cognizable interest in the manner in which another state conducts its elections. All other pending motions are dismissed as moot. That's it. The end. So there's no judicial reasoning from the bench. They simply say Texas hasn't come up with any judicial reasoning as to why they should be allowed in the courthouse. The only judicial reasoning in the order, the only judicial argument, comes from uh, Mr. Justice Alito's dissent in which he says, in my view, we do not have discretion to deny the filing of a bill of complaint in a case that falls within our original jurisdiction. In other words, most of the time, uh, the Supreme Court is dealing with cases that have worked their way up through lower courts, and it has discretion over whether it accepts those cases. It takes only a tiny percentage of the petitioners uh, trying to get in the door. But this particular question is a dispute between states, Uh, And that is something in which the Supreme Court has original jurisdictions. That's to say, uh, in such matters, it's the first and only court you can go to on that matter. It's like when you burgle your neighbors uh, and you wind up in county court, because that's the court of original jurisdiction for when you commit a burglary. When it comes to disputes between the states, Uh, The Supreme Court is not an appellate court, it's the original trial court. And in that situation, Alito and Clarence Thomas say we don't see how we can refuse to let a plaintiff file a statement of claim when we're the court of original jurisdiction. And that's the only thing any of these nine judges have offered by way of legal argument. Otherwise, the Supreme Court's dismissal is as perfunctory as you can get, which is yet another reason why, as I've said many times uh, in recent months about Republicans who keep going on about judicial nominees, when you're obsessing on judges, you're already playing defense. 
Oh, and uh, one other thing uh, while I'm at it, Rob, on the question of where all the election fraud is most clearly laid out, do take a look at Peter Navarro's dossier. It's so much better written and organised than any of Trump's lawyers' court filings. And it actually shows you how the official certified result of this election is a statistical impossibility. Mark Stein's Last Call. April 1986, and a town of some 14,000 people in Soviet Ukraine that has lived in obscurity since its days as a ducal hunting lodge in the 12th century is about to become world famous. Chernobyl. The Soviet nuclear leak was first detected in Sweden. 60 miles north of Stockholm, tests at a power station showed unexpectedly high level radioactivity on a worker's shoes. Russia has many nuclear stations like the one at Chernobyl and they produce 15% of her electricity. The design is unique to Russia and not used in the West. You don't say. As with the Covid, so with the fallout. The communists lied to the world as the winds blew the radiation all over Europe and Asia. There was a brief mention of the disaster on Soviet television news. They said two people had died and 197 had been taken to hospital. A man in Kiev contacted a man in Israel and spoke of hundreds of casualties. The Americans took satellite pictures of the devastated power plant. They believe they are evidence that the casualties were much higher than officially admitted. This what about the reports over here, Ambassador, that uh, several thousand people have been killed in no, the accident? That's not true. That's Mrs. not true. That's not true. Was Mrs. Thatcher annoyed that you didn't tell the West earlier about this accident? Well, we informed the government of the United Kingdom this morning about this accident officially. In Poland, where some radioactivity was measured, children were given iodine as a precaution. The Soviet Union may have lied to the planet, but inside the Kremlin, they understood the reality of what they were dealing with. They had no particular care for Poles or Swedes, but for the sake of the regime, they had to stop the spread of the radiation from the exposed reactor core. Seal it off. Shut it down. But how? They chose to smother the reactor with sand and boron and other such materials, and it fell to 100 helicopters to drop those materials uh, on the reactor over the course of a fortnight. It was a very perilous mission. The team were called the Liquidators, and the commanding pilot from an air base in Kiev was Nikolai Antoshkin. Such temperature conditions are difficult for helicopters. Their temperature was up to 200 degrees at different points, at a height of 200 meters above the reactor. In the burning heat, helicopters hovered over the exploded reactor. 
Engineers threw down sacks of sand while the pilots struggled to control the helicopter. After one or two flights like this, engineers vomited on landing. The heat, along with the radiation, was too much for a human. Hovering over the heat at Chernobyl, he took what should have been a lethal dose of radiation. But he lived. He lived to see the fall of the Soviet Union, the interregnum of Yeltsin and the rise of a new czar. And since 2014, he himself had been a deputy in the Russian Duma. He survived the flames of Chernobyl but not the Chicom 19, dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 78, a very brave man, General Nikolai Antoshkin. Drink it down in one breath. Drink, 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 drink. Eins, zwei, drei, vier, lift your sign and drink. Gary Alexander, our great jazz maven, reminded me that Sunday would have been the 100th birthday of Mario Lanza. He was born on January the 31st, 1921, at 636 Christian Street in Philadelphia. And don't bother making a pilgrimage because they tore it down two years ago. For a brief moment, he was one of the biggest stars in the world. When I was uh, a child, my father had a Mario Lanza EP, an extended play single, of songs from the film uh, of The Student Prince. And he loved that EP and he played it all the time. And I was into whatever it was back then, Bob Dylan, Joni Mitchell, the progressive rock group Camel. Uh, And so it vaguely irked me that when I woke up each morning, my dad would be flooding the house with some tenor singing stuff from some ancient operetta. And yet, as I came to know it word for word, note for note, I began to appreciate it on its own terms. Popular music doesn't have to be progressive rock, and it speaks well for a culture that it can make an operatic tenor a big chart pop star, as it did with Mario Lanza. And the other day I found myself wondering where that EP had gotten to because I had a sudden yen to hear it. Um, And entirely by coincidence, I chanced to uh, hear Brian Savin on Serenade Radio uh, many years ago in what was presumably a low point of his career, Brian was reduced to producing a show I hosted. I think we won an award for something. Anyway, Brian said that uh, he too had bought that Mario Lanza EP, uh, just like my dad, and he too loved it, and especially liked the drinking song and Serenade, but couldn't remember the other tracks on it. Well, they would have been Gaudiamus, Igitur, and Because. So here... For Mario Lanza's Centenary is my favourite track from that EP. Sigmund Romberg composed The Student Prince in 1924 
with a libretto by Dorothy Donnelly, and 30 years later when they filmed it, Paul Francis Webster wrote new lyrics to those Romberg tunes. And uh, either set of words would do because the tune is so lush and the singing is glorious. Overhead the moon is beaming, white as blossom on the bough. Nothing is heard but the song of a bird and a boy from Philadelphia with, as Kusevitsky told him, a voice such as is heard once in a hundred years. Overhead the moon is beaming White as blossoms on the bough Nothing is heard but the song of a bird Filling all the
Stanza and the famous serenade from the student prince. Five years later, he checked into a clinic in Rome to lose weight for a new film. Uh, the clinic uh, ran a program that involved so-called twilight sleep treatment, by which the patient is kept sedated and prone for long periods of time. A week and a half after he checked in, October the 7th, 1959, Mario Lanza supposedly had a pulmonary embolism and died. He was 38. His wife, Betty, flew home to Hollywood devastated, and she died five months later of a drug overdose. In the 90s and aughts, three of his four children also died young. But his song is eternal. Mario Lanza on his 100th birthday. Could I hear this song forever, calling to my heart anew? That will do it for today's show. See you back here in a few hours for the latest episode of George Orwell's 1984. Stay safe, stay free. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.